Escape from Plan A. Hello, Plan A listeners. Uh, good morning. I kind of assume you're listening to this on your morning commute. I'm your host, Oxford Kondo, and today we're so excited because we have a guest we've been trying to get on for a very long time, and she's finally here. So, along with Teen, we have Yasmin Nair. Welcome, Yasmin. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on here. I'm really excited about this. Yes, we are so excited for you as well. Uh, but before we start, uh, the usual uh, thing about, you know, please go support us on Patreon. We started it recently. We've hit some milestones recently. So thank you so much for supporting us. If you support us, you get the bonus pods, access to our Discord, and you get to contribute to our Writers Fund, which we're going to spend to, you know, encourage young and exciting Asian American writers to write for us. And also, if you like us, please subscribe and rate us on all the podcast hosting services. Uh, Yasmin, so, yeah, we're so excited to have you here. And for people who unfortunately don't know, may not be as familiar familiar with you as we are, uh, please just introduce yourself, what you're about. Uh, where you are right now, etc. Sure. Um, I am currently based in Chicago in in an extremely strange and interesting and weird neighborhood called Hyde Park, which is also home to the University of Chicago and is literally, quite literally, actually, the birthplace of neoliberalism, uh, the great founder (laughs) (laughs) of privatization, because that's uh, where the U of Chicago uh, invented it, as it were. Um, And I'm a writer. I've been writing for a a long time on various lefty uh, topics. Um, I am working towards, um, you know, actually making my living as a writer, which I don't do right now because people don't think writing should be paid for. So I'm really glad that you guys, you know, are have this project set up on the Patreon and are committed to paying for writers and so on. So that's always exciting to hear. Yeah, you gave us a real needed uh, kick in the ass <laughs> to get started on that. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> I'm very generous in the kicks. It is more. It is more like a gentle. <laughs> I trust it is more like a gentle, generous, you know, query that perhaps maybe a tap, a toe right, tap, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, I like I, I I write. That's really all I do. I mean, to make a living, I put together various odd jobs, including cat sitting, and I'm cat sitting for a wonderful friend's beautiful cat in a spectacular apartment, so that's great. But I do look forward to a world where, yeah, writers and others, you know, get paid for their labor. And, yeah, I love writing, and I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> well, I love, I love sushi and hot tubs, so, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, Yasmin, it was that, yeah, uh, more to what Oxford was talking about. Um, it was, I think we had originally planned to pod together... Uh, a few months ago, and then I think you had mentioned about sort of how writers or how medium was sort of like, you know, benefiting off the free labor, a lot of volunteer writers and stuff. And we had actually heard a lot of similar complaints, not specifically about medium, but just about the difficulty of not just getting paid for your writing, but also uh, getting it getting it through, uh, you know, the editorial filter out there. And there seemed to be a certain perspective um, that's especially like budding left perspectives that are really hard to get through. 
because, and I think a lot of your articles that I've read and really have enjoyed have sort of challenged the sort of dominant woke narrative uh, that claims to be in opposition to all that's horrible, all that's evil, all that's Trump, uh, but is uh, somehow free from uh, a robust criticism itself. And uh, and I think that's what's really hard to get through right now and, and something that, um, you know, we're looking to help people with and, and, and do ourselves. So, yeah, you asked me, I, I kind of. I kind of can't remember how like I uh, first read your stuff. I know Q uh, from one of our co-founders and and you know podcasters and writers is, was a big fan of you. I, I don't know if he introduced you to us, but one of the things I found really refreshing about you was that you did have this uh, leftist uh, point of view, but it wasn't predictable because you know there is that standard kind of progressive uh, thing. I mean that right. you write about this in the articles that we'll delve into. There is a certain like doctrine that you 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 get used to but you know reading yourself is really hard to predict where you would go and it all made sense if you read it so that's what we really i liked about you thank you thank you so much for that i really appreciate that um you know there's a lot of people like to dismiss me uh, precisely because they can't predict what i'm about to say they like to dismiss me as either sometimes believe it or not a right winger or horror of horrors they like to call me a libertarian you know the west and south <laughs> lefties can give each other to say you're just a bloody libertarian you know so there i am i suppose yeah. with my little copy of the fountain which by the way i have not even read the fountainhead ever and i should um, i know well neither have i so <laughs> <laughs> but I, think, I guess we're part of the same right part. exactly i think the important thing about left discourse what needs to be important and and I think we can talk about the reasons why it isn't any more important, is that the problem with left discourse right now is that there is a predictability because so much of left discourse is no longer, is not really being generated within active and dynamic context. It's being generated mostly within what likes to think of itself as a sort of a new, new left magazine world. And with that, exactly. I right, and with that comes a certain predictability. It's not just editorial uh, domination. Though I can speak to the fact, for instance, that you know there's a certain kind of assertion among the left that, you know, for instance, one must only think of uh, of immigration in a certain way, for instance. Uh, and the problem also is that that publication, that sort of publishing world, also exists. And is very much tied to and is actually very dependent upon social media. So if you publish a piece that is even a little bit seen as even a little bit seen as even a little bit controversial, you're terrified because you know you will end up being massacred on Twitter and Facebook and suffer from call-out culture, etc. So there isn't this dynamism, there is no longer a dynamism if there ever was, but there certainly isn't right now a dynamism to left thinking because, you know, I think the left is, on the one hand, very embedded in reading, for instance, Marx as if Marx was still alive within the very same economic conditions that he wrote his work in. There's that problem. It hasn't really understood how capitalism itself has mutated and changed swiftly and dangerously. And then there's the problem that left discourse has actually unfortunately become very elitist in its own way. So it doesn't really grasp the issues that people are dealing with 
in the real world, really. So, for instance, around race, I think the left is terrible on race because it keeps saying, well, race is just a construct. And when the revolution comes, we will have gotten rid of racism as well. If you get rid of you know, economic inequality, you'll get rid of racial inequality, which is bullshit because, yes, race is a construct, certainly a scientific construct, but race is also a reality that people have to navigate. And until you figure those two things out together, you're not going to get anywhere. So I think, um, and I think my work, what I really like to do is to, re I'm, I'm wedded to the integrity of an argument, regardless of where it takes me. I really need, and I think all of us should be doing that much more, but it's really difficult, I think, for left writers to do that in this current climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we can go into your first article that we can talk about, the one you wrote for The Baffler called Believe in Something, because I think it does a good job of introducing even people who aren't, aren't familiar with, with the ins and outs of this uh, with the idea. So um, would you perhaps just like to describe what this article is about, what made you want to write it and so forth? Yeah, it was proposed to me by, because I've written for The Baffler a fair amount, it was proposed to me by Chris Lehman, um, who thought, and I, because I've also written a lot about wokeness and woke culture and call-out culture. I once wrote about Sui Park, for instance. We might get to her today as well. Um, but I've been interested in capitalism and its facade of do-goodiness, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, and I've been interested in how the left in particular seems, in the wake of Trump, seems unable and unwilling to really go all out and has actually now taken to not quite knowing what to do when capital itself takes on the facade of the philanthropist or the do-gooder. And I think the left, again, because it is so mired in a rather musty idea of how capitalism works, doesn't really understand how capitalism works in the 21st century. Uh, so I was deeply interested in that and you know, and I, and I also, I have to confess, I always wanted to include that bit about Don Draper in the beginning. <laughs> the last scene right, of you're Mad, a big Mad Men. Fan. Yes, oh. I am. That last scene in Mad Men is fantastic uh, in its ambiguity. And I think it crystallizes a lot about capitalism itself. Um, so my dream just came true. <laughs> what? Uh, so I, I don't know when this podcast will go out. So this might become dated. But I, the Women's World Cup was on today. And I think that it might be a prime example of how this uh, corporate wokeness works because uh, I'm sure a lot of people know by now the the captain of the women's team, Megan Rapino, famously said, you know, I'm not going to the fucking White House. She's a very out uh, lesbian, like, you know, spokesperson and everything. So uh, uh, the, the game itself was very entertaining and everything. But I was just following it on Twitter and I, I thought I saw a lot of people um, kind of consciously taking on this like they consciously knew that this game meant more than um, just just the game itself. This this had like political implications and all that. But at, at the end of it, who benefits from all these viewers? It's FIFA, one of the most corrupt, mm -hmm. po like probably evil organizations yes. in the world. And for them to be able to use this to boost, uh, you know, their product, um, exactly. I'm happy for women's soccer. And exactly, but it's it was just like oh, now, but who's actually benefiting? It's mm -hmm. it's FIFA. It's fucking FIFA. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think it's also outrageous, frankly, that Megan Rapinoe should be so outraged about Trump. And there's a lot of outrage about Trump, but all of it ignores the fact that everything that we're seeing 
in Trump's regime is a consequence of several decades of political uh, of political decimation of immigration rights, for instance, or of women's rights, and so on. There's a way in which I think people like Megan Rapinoe, who, especially with being being an out lesbian and all of that, I think they accrue a certain kind of cultural and social cachet. And also, of course, as we know, uh, many uh, contracts with various corporations <laughs> like mm-hmm. Nike. It's a big money-making endeavor. I'm not doubting her sincerity, but I also do think it's extraordinarily naive. I don't, I really don't, yeah. I mean, there's a whole, the background of all of this, of course, is the pretense in America that Trump, Somehow the world ended on November 8, 2016, and that all our problems began then. But every single thing that we are witnessing right now, including, you know, what are being called concentration camps, what are being called child migration, name it, abortion rights, the end thereof, etc. All of that, much of it, in fact, has been brought about by Democrat presidents. And remember when Obama was elected, uh, a lot of uh, people were, this is who America truly is. We've, you know, we found our soul. And then when Trump got elected, it's like, this is not who we are. But no, if you look at history, we have way more Trumps than Obamas. Like if you're talking about a rich, uh, stupid, kind of talentless, racist, sexist, (laughs) corrupt guy winning presidency, that has happened so many times. And, you know, and, and at the end of it all, Trump is probably not even going to be one of the worst presidents in terms of there was no war, there's no genocide, right. you know, economy hasn't tanked, you know, yeah. so it's like, what exactly, like, what exactly is so earth shattering about his election right. in the big scheme of things? It's nothing. <laughs> I mean, Obama was, yeah, famously the deporter in chief. Uh, he he uh, Trump has not even exceeded Obama's deportation numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it. I think it still goes back to Trump being, you know, I think the major problem with Trump and the major thing that distinguishes him from prior presidents, at least in in sort of recent memory, living memory, is that he was opposed by his own party. Right. I think I think it was the fact that the GOP uh, establishment uh, wasn't in control of his campaign Mm -hmm. that I think is really what, you know, has made Trump an outlier. Uh, and that, and then the aftershocks of that was that the Democrats would would soon lose control of their own party on the same basis to a to a sort of um, uh, uh, you know so, uh, an outsider from the from the left, right? And so I think it, it I think it, there was a panic about loss of control through the party machine that kind of made Trump you know sort of uniquely special and and perhaps you know portrayed as uniquely terrible, but. I, you know, I, I, he hasn't yet, yet got us into a war on false pretenses the way that, you know, Bush two had, right? So I don't think he's quite into Bush two levels of, of, you know, true acts of evil, though he's getting close, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and on on that note, I'm also amused by the when you you know when you you're so right about the Republican Party and the sense of angst at having lost control. But there's also such such a class direct such a class narrative emerging from all of this. You know, he's just not one of our kind. As if you know, Bushes the Bushes are royalty in comparison, and the Bushes were elegant. <laughs> they were elegant while they slaughtered millions. <laughs> 
Yeah. So you mean like the the Martha's Vineyard class exactly, disliking exactly. Trump mainly because he'd be an embarrassing right. dinner guest. Martha's, as opposed Martha's to, Vineyard, yeah. where Democrats and Republicans, you know, put aside all differences to exult in the fact the glory of their money. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not even a question of Democrats and Republicans. It's a question of the moneyed class. Uh, you know, and I honestly, I, I'm not even sure. To be honest, I'm going to be writing about this in a little while, very tentatively. I'm not sure that the Democratic Democrat Party actually wants to win. I don't think it's interested in winning. I think I don't think it's interested in winning, which is why I think it backed Hillary Clinton, despite knowing in its bones that people didn't actually want Clinton, neither you know Republicans nor Democrats. Nobody really wanted Clinton, but Clinton was foisted upon. The Democrats, and I think the same is true. For instance, they may dump Joe Biden eventually, but they've been pushing Biden very hard. And against, say, for instance, Warren and Sanders, uh, because I think that's about power. I think what Democrats want, it doesn't. I think what Americans fail to realize is that the country, at the end of the day, is run by people with power and money. And in some ways, to be honest, for me. The Republicans are more sincere politicians. <laughs> I feel like the Democrats, with their deep cynicism and their refusal, right, and their their refusal to actually listen to what people might want, and their steadfast determination to foist upon us someone who, like Biden, is. You know, is 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 going to be a complete disaster if he runs against Trump. It's going to be a joke, <laughs> right? It's going to be a complete fuck. Okay, so now we have two men who sexually harass women fighting it out. <laughs> Yay! You know, we've achieved absolute parity. But I do. I think that's because for Democrats, the for the Democratic machine, what matters is power, and power comes along. Whether or not your candidate actually wins, it, the winning is not the point. It's the construction and the maintenance of the status quo machine that matters. I think perhaps I've been in Chicago too long because, as you know, Chicago is famous for its machine politics, and it has perfected that.、Mm-hmm. Right, so it's about power. You can win or you can lose, but do you have power? And that's the issue. And I think that might come out a little bit in the way where. You know, despite the、uh, surprise loss, I guess it was surprise and a humiliation of of the Democrats in 2016. That I don't hear a lot of lamentation about what could have been, because I don't think that there was an articulated version of 2019 or 2020. Like, where would we be had she won? There doesn't seem to be any vision of that alternate history. It's more just、um, just sort of can we go back to normalcy? Can we? Write this ship,、uh, but there's no sense of what what were they what were they hoping 2019 or 2020 would have looked like. I don't think anyone even has an idea, and so there's there's not much mourning in the public about what could have been. You know,、um, at most maybe a few pieces of like policy, like the Paris,、uh, you know,、uh, climate change or the Iran. Nuclear deal, but that's not really a vision, right? It's just like one or two things, right?、Um, right. Whatever.、Um, actually, Yasmin, to what you were saying, yeah, after the debates, like just when I was when I got to like talk to people, especially kind of like you know wealthier, power, more like powerful people, and so the way they talked about、uh, the debate, it it just seems like it's an audition, right? Yes. And, and <laughs> they have their they have their band of acceptable candidates who 
basically have the same platform, more or less. One might be a bit more strident on climate change. One might be more strident on, um, you know, criminal justice reform or whatever. But they're they're in, in they're in a predictable, acceptable, like. Uh, uh, controllable range and then it's like oh Kamala Harris I like I like the cut of her jib or you know right. Pete Buttigieg um oh he's so eloquent and it's like it, it just seems like a like a show business right. what is this it right is. and it's it's like they, they already know what these people are doing they're just looking for kind of like their friend almost yeah. like somebody they they when they go into their uh I guess meeting at the White House uh what uh you know with their special access who would I get along yes. best with kind of thing yes definitely yeah. Yasmin, you kind of brought that up in your regarding the um, the right being perhaps more sincere. You kind of brought this up in sort of like, you know, the leftist horror at watching Tucker Carlson uh, (laughs) take aim at, uh, you know, the corporate elite as, you know, mercenaries who don't care about the problems of the everyday American and uh, sort of the horror at seeing like perhaps that sort of class outrage being co-opted and and by the right uh with no meaningful right i think that was in the the cap the the um that that article right the first one yes, about the uh, yeah actually yes. i actually yeah. want to read uh sure. something you wrote yasmin that i really liked and i think our listeners should hear you said while poor people continue to be ground down this left obsession with the trappings of wokeness leaves a vacant discursive space that carlson's full concern for the everyman can invade with his attendant xenophobia and over-deference to billionaires. By supporting the idea that capitalism itself is fine, we just need to be nicer under it. So I think that answers a critical question, like corporate wokeness, um, isn't it kind of like everybody wins? But as you say, no, there's a real danger to mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, because what corporate wokeness does is to blind us to the structural inequalities and the ways in which systems of domination continue to grind people down. And I, you know, so... You know, back not to be all nostalgic because I was actually quite, but 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 Seattle, for instance, you know, the Seattle '99 riots, practically, uh, which in, ended up creating a massive number of pieces of legislation that ultimately squelched the right to dissent in public. But that was actually a strike against capitalism, right? And I write about that in the essay about how there were Starbucks being smashed, windows were being smashed, and. We not we not only no longer have the ability to do that because we're barely allowed to march on the sidewalk these days, but we also have lost the ability to think about how to actually smash systems of domination. Instead, we keep wondering how can we possibly tweak, right? So how can we buy better bulbs? How can we become better people who can farm in, in our backyards, you know, um, for better produce? Uh, how can we learn how to mend our own shoes and recycle our own shit? And I mean that quite literally. I've written about this whole process. <laughs> it's a disgusting, it's a, there's a disgusting thing called, uh, what is it? Humanure. Um, you know, this, but all these. Oh, really? I've never even heard of that. Oh, it's the idea that human shit actually is viable as, as, well, as, as, as cow shit is used. This <laughs> oh. is actually- urban homesteading and all of that. I don't mean to mock all of that relentlessly, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the, the left increasingly looks to, has, has kind of, is forgetting about structural uh, causalities. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. 
Oh no, I, I was just gonna go off on a tangent uh, because you brought up the recycling hu- human uh, shit. Because I recently had this drink that was made uh, like an alcoholic drink, but it had ants in it. It, re- it reminded me of that scene from the movie Snowpiercer, in which the oh, yes. like the proletarian passengers realize their food is made out of like crickets or cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that that's not so bad. Like I mean, it could be worse. I mean, that's like a good source of protein. But apparently, in the original comic it was actually human excrement so <laughs> i was like oh okay i can i can see why they get pissed off about that but hey you know if you're living in a post-apocalyptic world i think like cockroach bars are a pretty good food i would say but i as i said it was a total tangent uh, please continue <laughs> no that yeah go ahead sorry you were about to say something or was that uh, no i was just laughing at the idea of eating cricket bars um and that that was somehow more um more palatable than i guess human waste bars which i would agree with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, this the West in particular is obsessed. You know, coming back to yeah, questions around capitalism. The West in particular is obsessed with shit. You know, especially on the left, sort of this radical uh, group of people who actually think that you know you've got to you've got to pretty much keep your shit to yourself in very close to you and somehow either recycle it or and not use um you know flushing toilets etc cetera, etc cetera. and whereas in a vast part of the world there are people desperate for toilets right for water flushing toilets uh, because it is so humiliating especially for women by the way in many parts of the world to have to wait till night um, to use, oh, you know, yeah. to use uh, a, a dark part of uh, the area they live in, which is also dangerous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, th- there are ways in which, right, capitalism is defined by, I think, the West's obsession with this kind of authenticity, and which is, I think, also why this notion of woke capitalism is so strong in particularly in part in places like the United States. I think it's especially true of the US, uh, perhaps less so so of other Western quote unquote democracies. But certainly in the US, I think a lot of this wokeness in capitalism has a lot to do with the fetishization of the quote unquote other, right? The East, this idea that somehow there are these alternative ways of living that we need to incorporate. And if we can just incorporate all of that into capitalism or somehow pretend that we're living outside capitalism by, for instance, refusing to use flushing toilets, then the world's problems will be solved. But the truth of the matter is, you know what? Millions of people across the world, their lives would be better if they had flushing toilets, right? Their lives would be mm-hmm. safer, cleaner, less hazardous, less uh, less owners upon their bodies, for instance. Let's give them flushing toilets. Let's also figure out how to how to dismantle capitalism's exploitation of their labor at the same time. Um, I, yeah, American capitalism is, is an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I feel like yeah, part I of think- it is there's there is this widespread assumption like you see this in like these weird criticisms i see of people who sort of clap back at leftists who say if you're if you don't like capitalism then you can't buy anything right like you can't participate in any sort of like material production whatsoever there is an assumption that uh capitalism is sort of what makes things period if you if you partake in any sort of commerce, if you Pleasure. partake in any sort, yeah, then, you know, th- then you are complicit with, you know, the thing that yes. you're deriding. 
Right. And I think that that's, there's an assumption there that's really deeply embedded because, I mean, it doesn't take long to sort of see through that, uh, that position. But uh, it seems to work. I think that it does, like you said, it does start people down this path of like, well, mm-hmm. if I really want to be true to the, you know, true to sort of undermining the, you know, or, or being resistant to uh, capitalist structures, I basically have to, you know, um, not be a part, like, I, I have to eat grass and poop in a yes. hole and make sure that you know, that is all, you know, like the alternative right. to capitalism is just the, yes. uh, the oxygen cycle. Right, right like exactly. And that's it. You know, the Stone yeah, Age yeah. or something, yeah. yeah. We're all like living in some walking dead scenario, the, the post-apocalypse, where we're desperately hoping we'll find a can of tuna uh, and, you know, recycle every bit of it. No, it, it's the left in particular. And I think that, again, the left, the American left especially, has this horror of pleasure. That's also a fundamental problem. It has a horror of pleasure and it really... The other problem with the, I think this may also be particular to the American left, perhaps not, but I think what we often don't look at and criticize is the fact that a lot of people, a significant number of people on the left, especially those who own the magazines and run things, are actually people of extraordinary wealth. We don't want to admit that, or if we do, we just sort of pretend to not see it. So there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy that emerges from that. In Chicago, for instance, where I live, you know, the, I, I run into constantly, I'm running into all these people who are constantly talking about how we need to give up X and Y and it's awful and, you know, don't enjoy anything. How dare you enjoy cross movie? You know, for instance, I never see films anymore. I only see movies. Uh, so, you know, it's to, to take pleasure in anything is considered a horrific thing. And then you go to their homes and you suddenly realize, wait, why do you have a four-bedroom house? Where are you living? And it turns <laughs> or a Picasso. Right, exactly. And it turns out, of course, that they're all just, you know, that their fathers and grandfathers bestowed these things on them. It turns out that they're trust fund babies. This is a cliche, certainly, but it's actually very, very true in the left. And I think so there are those two things going on. One is that there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy on the left about money and the fact that many people on the left have money, but also demand that the rest of us live without it, right? There's that. And then there's the fact that structurally what that does is it a lot is it occludes us it rather it it occludes the processes of power the structural inequalities the fact that money actually is part of power the left doesn't want to admit to that and this is where i think the right succeeds as well as it does because it has no problem with money if you write for a right wing publication more likely than not you are getting paid a lot better than you would for any left magazine You'll get paid on time without question, right? Because the right understands, <laughs> right? Because the right understands. I mean, and I say this as someone who has had to literally like threaten to sue certain people uh, to get her measly, um, you know, hundred dollars or something from from people. But the left, and the, you know, the left wants to pretend that money doesn't exist, and yet it also wants to pretend that it has an analysis of capitalism. You can't. You can't destroy capitalism if you don't understand how money functions. And money at this point in time, until the fucking revolution arrives and we are in a money-free utopia, people bloody fucking well need to be paid for their labor and they need to be paid well. 
The right understands that if you don't pay someone well, they're just not going to be able to produce what you want from them in, in the, you know, at the appropriate time. Now, obviously, I'm not claiming that the right is wonderful in every way. The right also exploits millions of workers across the world, right? But in terms of causing the structures of power to function, the right knows that it has to pour money into them. The left refuses to even consider the fact that money actually operates in a particular way, right? The left fundamentally, quite frankly, the left fundamentally does not understand how money works. And I say this about a lot of Marxists. Marxists do not understand how money actually works. They think of capital in metaphorical terms, and that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of woke capitalism, uh, people on the left are willing to pour in money, but in the things they want to see. For instance, for example, I think we see this a lot with entertainment, like like the the recent casting of of a, a black girl as Ariel in the Little Mermaid. I, I think like Disney has become, I think one of the, the biggest symbols of, of corporate wokeness, and that is something that I think, um, you know, pe some certain people uh, on the whole like woke capitalism left care very much about and they are willing to uh you know spend invest a lot of money into these things because it means a lot to them and to a certain extent i think it is you know like media representation is important Absolutely. to an extent but um but it's a, it's a little overboard because like the thing about media criticism is you're supposed to use that as a as a criticism of society but to think that oh just with a few castings here and there everything can be uh, fixed is the is like looking at it like ass backwards. And to be fair, you know, I don't have a, yeah, I mean, the whole business of uh, casting, I believe Halle Berry, right? Uh, as as Ariel it is. Uh, Halle Bailey, uh, not like Halle Berry, the Oscar winning actress, uh, this oh, younger, much younger sorry. girl, Halle Bailey. I Actually, didn't wonder because so, I hadn't seen that and I thought, wait a minute, isn't she a little old? How did she come across as a 14 year old? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, because I haven't been really been following. And I'm like, really? Halle Berry is going to be Ariel? That's a little weird. She's old enough to be Ariel's great aunt. <laughs> but Actually, Halle Berry started trending on Twitter uh, um, okay. when this announcement was came. So because a lot she... of people did think, because their names sound very Yeah, similar. I was just like, what the fuck? But, um... Okay, got it. Cut that talk out. <laughs> so we can start the conversation again. No, I, th I, think, so... I, think that's, okay. uh, I think that's a All fun right. little aside. Right. Go um, ahead. But Yasin actually, is stupid think... at this point. But okay. But I think, <laughs> so for me, the issue is, right, you can cast a person of color, a black woman, as Ariel. And I think, quite frankly, given that, you know, bloody mermaids don't actually exist the whole issue of arguing you know uh, whether or not she should be black or white is a little odd in itself i don't have a exactly. problem with that but my problem with yeah is what then happens is that because then certain extreme right wingers you know are angry about a black person in that role then the left decides, oh, well, that's what's important. It's because the right is, you know, then the whole conversation becomes something else entirely, as opposed to anything meaningful. Not only that, but Disney now has an incentive to gin this all up because it's going to be great for their bottom line. If they can tell yes. people, hey, um, you know, to, to fight against Trump or, you know, the uh, neo-Nazis or whatever, you got to go see this movie on opening right, night. Right, exactly. Resistance. This is part of the resistance. And it's, devo and it's devoid of political content, right? Yes. It's, yes. It, it contains a casting controversy and it allows you to sort of take a side in that. Right. And the the ability for people to take sides and positions on the movie probably mm -hmm. is 
probably right. you know through their calculation yeah. going to benefit its box office performance and they can do this and they can remain political and edgy and and woke with, while avoiding uh well basically retelling you know the <laughs> little mermaid story which has really nothing to do with anything <laughs> no it's a horrible um, story it's an absolutely horrible story i mean it's a terrible <laughs> story so, you know it's, it's it's such a bloody literally a bloodied story uh it's a terrible story but you know, thinking she's ashamed of being from the sea i mean come on you yeah <laughs> you're right yeah. right she's wrenched from her natural surroundings and her own family and everything yeah it's a horribly tragic story yeah she's she's a self-hating mermaid she's exactly. got some internalized uh, exactly. speciesism going on that's like well she she hates the fish half of herself she loves the yes. human half <laughs> i know right there's a metaphor <laughs> well, right there but it, you know this exactly. also reminds me of the controversy around uh the ghostbusters film the one made with an all-female oh, I think cast. that really kicked it all off. And that yeah. was, quite frankly, you know, I saw that film and I remember the, I think it was Manolo Dodgers of the New York Times praising it to the skies. And of course, everybody actually went to see it because they said, well, this is part of the resistance. We've got to support a movie that has an all-female cast. You know, I went to see it. It was a terrible film. It was a lousy <laughs> plot. Right? It was a shitty story. It was a lousy plot. The actors individually were okay, some better than others. But there was, it was not, you know, the first Ghostbusters was absolutely fucking hilarious because it had fantastic comedic timing. It had a really interesting sort of complicated story, as complicated as you can get about, you know, mythical Ghostbusters. Certainly, yes. But it was, it, this was a terrible movie. Not only that, they had the requisite black character, right? They had a black woman. Uh, the comic whose name is oh, Leslie, Jones, yes, Leslie right? Jones of Saturday Night Live. And they did absolutely nothing to shift that role in any meaningful way. And if anything, she had to play the role, to put it bluntly, in a really stereotypical mammy way. I mean, it was practically ministrancy. Mm -hmm. It was horrible. It was so deeply uncomfortable for me to watch. Uh, this, you know, Leslie Jones of all people, right? I mean, she's like the six feet two, you know. She's this tall, dynamic, <laughs> incredible looking woman with a mouth on her. <laughs> you know, she's an amazing comic. She can be really funny. She's been controversial, but she's also very out there and brazen and comic, constantly talks about her sex life, for instance. And they cast her, frankly, it was a it was it was just cringe inducing to see how they made her nothing but a very stereotypical almost like very 1990s right in terms of the actual ghost the original ghostbuster a very sort of 1990s stereotype of a black mammy it was horrible to watch and but you had all these feminists men and women almost all white insisting that the film had to be supported because there are all these women characters and i thought yes but it's a bloody racist film a b it's a shitty film but we're constantly being told that we must support, you know, anything that seems to be breaking the mold just because it's so different. And then in contrast, and this is my pet peeve, and I have discussed this on other podcasts, but I have to bring this up again. In contrast, fucking A.O. Scott of the New York Times reviewed uh, The Secret Life of Pets. I will never forgive him. I will never forgive him. Because he gave it a bad review, basically saying it wasn't woke enough. I think that's essentially what he said. But he couched what? it. Yes. But here's the, here's the rub for me, right? 
he couched it as well it's a it's a movie about dogs and i'm a cat person and i read that and i thought oh i'm a cat person okay i agree with you and i didn't see it and then i watched it on netflix and it's bloody brilliant <laughs> it is not as woke as he would want to be but it's fantastic but it wasn't woke enough for him uh teen you should tell yasmin about uh your uh, how you've used the secret life of pets as a very useful metaphor for racial consciousness in America. Oh yeah, we should do a whole one with Trevor where we we we're kind of converging on the idea of this secret life of pets effect where yeah, uh, the bunny. you know you yeah, but like but it serves as a good template like because in that case we're talking about pets, but I think that there are a lot maybe this is a segue, but like there is um how, how do you how do I get from secret life of pets to what I want to say secret life of pets I think um. It 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 does a it does what I think a lot of POC centered movies are. There's there's a there's an Asian American romantic comedy on Netflix called Always Be My Maybe mm-hmm. that that recently came out with Randall Park and Ali Wong and we were t- I was just talking with Trevor uh, you know our mutual friend Trevor uh, mm-hmm. who does this Champagne Sharks uh, podcast about how hey, there was a certain yeah there was a certain secret life of pets effect of that movie where San Francisco was sort of you know, sort of like the overarching, like the the sort of social reality of San Francisco was sort of toned down, sort of uh, muted to some extent. And the Asian Americans were sort of brought out to be sort of like hyper, you know, sort of the only people of concern. Same thing with Secret Life of Pets, where we sort of, for the sake of the movie and as a as a farcical vehicle, we sort of blank out you know sort of like charlie brown style while all the adults turn into trombones yes um we do that and just kind of focus on these uh pets and their sort of self-deluded belief that they're running the city um and i feel like they're does that segue into kind of what i want to say i'm trying to do this as skillfully as i can but like i do want to say as we're talking about race and the left i think that one thing i've noticed is that there has been an uh, a sort of I don't want to say quite explosion, but there has been a an increase in the number of POC POC candidates and celebrities and 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 and, and, and such talking heads, media personalities on the left, where I feel like they're they don't seem to come in with an actual like let's say if like um I don't know if you're like um a, a black journalist or 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 um an Asian American uh you know political candidate or something um they don't seem to have a built-in base of they don't seem to be leaders within like a POC community which were then raised into national right. attention like through their yeah. base constituency mm-hmm. you know and and it seems like uh you know what we see instead are sort of vetted uh appointees that are nom- nominated sort of on our behalf to speak for us. And there's a, you know, and I think that there is a media sphere which sort of suppresses any sort of um, P- POC who question whether they have the standing or, you know, to, to speak for us. Uh, and so there is something that the left's engaging in here that I find really disturbing um, I know there's a lot of controversy over whether Kamala Harris has an adequate record that is in any way better 
than say Joe Biden's, despite the fact that she took him to task for, uh, you know, being a segregationist, right? You know, things uh, like that. Like mm -hmm. it's really, it's it's a really weird argument that's going on, Um, right? Yeah. That argument between them was interesting because I think as someone else also pointed out, you know, there was that moment when Joe Biden looked at her and said, I was a public defender. You are a prosecutor. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. I was so disappointed in so many on the left actually then praising Kamala Harris for this extraordinary moment, yada, yada, yada. And as it turns out, actually, even on busing, uh, she has since... She walked it yeah, back, right? Yeah, she walked it back. She, she walked totally it back. She walked it back, yeah. So, I mean... And uh, right after the debates, there was a, a woman named Zerlina Maxwell. She went on MSNBC and basically said that there's a whole bunch of black dudes out there who will hate mm-hmm, Kamala Harris mm-hmm. just because she's married to a white man. Oh, it felt like they were, huh. they were... They were saying... Yeah, they were... I think she was maybe anticipating that Kamala Harris was going to do this, like, flip-flop thing. So she's, like, trying to throw this out there so that the, the white people... This was meant for white people, for yeah. them to uh, get this and just kind of preempt... Oh, you see all these like black people, especially black men, hating her. It's because they're a bunch of like misogynists or something. That was yeah. But now, like you know, like her her crowning moment, which I guess worked because she's now second in the right, average polls right, uh, behind right. Biden, just ahead of Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, yeah. she might, yeah, she might end up with the nomination just because, and she probably she might end up as the nominee because I think only because Biden is doing so badly and there are things coming out every day. And now there are things about his family members, et cetera, et cetera. You know, his son and his sister-in-law. I mean, there's just stuff. That's so weird. It is so weird. I I mean, in some ways, it's actually understandable because I read all of that and I thought, you know, grief does weird things to people. But who's going to have a discourse and analysis of all of that? But I think the whole Biden family is kind of, (laughs) you know, interestingly weird in, in strange ways. So I think it might even end up with, say, I'm trying to think who the other... We have, what, 20-odd, 20, perhaps 24 as we speak, 20-odd candidates right now. Um, well, there's Mayor Pete, whom you... Uh, this is actually a perfect way to to segue into your article. Speaking of minority um, candidates, oh, the gay candidate, yes. <laughs> uh, so, Yasmin, you wrote an article recently called American Gay, Pete Buttigieg and the Politics of Forgetting. And before we talk about this, Teen, did you say that Mark called him Pete Buttigieg? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the best one I've heard. Uh, so, Yasmin, um, this is just some insider Asian stuff. Okay. Like, Purichiga is a, is a Korean dish. Uh-huh. It's actually an army stew. Oh. It's, it, it, it translates to army stew, which okay. actually uh, makes kind of sense in his context. I, yes. it's, it's basically junk food. It's a lot. I see. It's like, I see, yes. uh, you know, like ramen seasoning, right. has like sausages and spam. It's very delicious. I, I highly so- recommend you try I was it. Say, it sounds really good. <laughs> It tastes great. Yes. It's horrible for you, but it tastes great. But that's such a good name, Pete Buttigieg. Yes. <laughs> but um, actually, and also, when you talked about the left having a lot of money, uh, what you wrote about the human rights campaign, yes. I thought was mm-hmm. a great example of that. Um, just, just please, just talk about your article. Sure. No. So I wrote about Pete Buttigieg. At, I was writing on the Jesse Smollett. I was researching the Jesse Smollett uh, matter, which is still underway, by the way. Uh, but then, oh my God, course, it feels like that was like last year. I know it does, doesn't it? But it is. And actually, <laughs> uh, the Jesse Smollett piece, just to just to sort of promote myself, is continuing to be relevant, especially in terms of where Chicago politics is in, in the nationwide firmament of what's happening. Uh, but that's anyway, we can talk about that much later when I write that piece. But P- Pete Buttigieg then blew up and I realized, OK, I have to write about this guy, you know, and especially since June was coming along, 50th anniversary, et cetera, et cetera, Stonewall. It seemed particularly crucial. 
but Buttigieg, as we all know, is quote-unquote the gay candidate, but he's a gay candidate at a time when it's no longer particularly special to be gay. Um, and it was interesting to see why and how he, you know, he soared very quickly to number three, I think at least, uh, off on the list. And my point in my article is simply that Buttigieg allows Americans to think that, you know, especially the liberals, you know, the sort of broad swath of liberals from liberals to liberals on the left, the liberals, progressives, and the actual sort of leftists to imagine that we've now, he's anti-Trump, you know, he's gay, he's white, but he's so quote-unquote articulate, etc. And the point I make in the essay very quickly is simply that he allows us to forget uh, because he's also an Afghanistan war veteran. He's a perfect candidate in many ways. And he allows us to forget that Afghanistan, for instance, is, you know, the United States' longest running war and that it is a war filled, as many wars are, filled with all kinds of brutality. And I think Buttigieg allows us to imagine a different America where the gay parts and the sort of military, you know, um, xenophobic, <laughs> warmongering parts can all exist uh, happily. What I argue simply is that he allows us to forget American history and reimagine it as something else, you know, as something that represents inclusivity and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I understand why, what kind of market he appeals to, but I, I have like, what, what is this guy's deal? Like, I guess he kind of vaguely looks like a long lost Kennedy cousin, maybe, but it's mm-hmm. just like, I, he's like, what's, what's his, like, you know, like, you know what he, his, you know yeah. what appeal I feel like he has, uh, in a way, he, he kind of reminds, cause he's from, what is he, South, mayor of South Bend, Indiana? South Bend. He's South Bend, uh, about a hundred thousand people, yes. Yeah, and I think that, um, I, isn't isn't that town in Parks and Rec also in Indiana, like Pawnee or? It is, or yes, Pawnee, Indiana. Like, I feel yes. like there's. I'm from yeah, Indiana, I feel like Buttigieg, yes. <laughs> oh really? Okay, yeah. Well, I feel in my like own there's way, yes. uh, that that show. Oh okay, I feel like that show set up a sort of imaginary, yes, uh, modern day Midwest sort yes. of utopia. Yes. Of sort of just sort of American modernity, mm-hmm. and but it just That's kind right. of reminds me of the Scott Adams character in that. Uh, is that his name, Scott Adams, or what's that actor's name? I forgot. Um, Adam Scott. What or, is the character he plays? Or? He's sort of like the. I think he's a politician in it, um, but he's sort of like an all-American guy, all-American boy. They kind of look similar. Oh yes, the one who was once the mayor of a small town at the age of eighteen. Yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um I I I got I see it's like if you say the name wrong, um yeah. you get a complete opposite person. You get If you say Scott Adams, I'm referring to the far right creator of Tilbert. I'm right. talking about Adam Scott, the actor. Yeah, he's got he he's got that sort of um I don't know. There, it he just makes me think of a really comforting television show like Parks mm-hmm. and Rec. He's Wright. the Ben Wyatt. He's the Ben Wyatt basically. Ben Wyatt, exactly. Yeah, Sorry, that's the name. Ben yeah, Wyatt. Just, yeah, he's a I Ben Wyatt it. guy. In case people think I'm brilliant, I'm not. I just Googled it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just secretly Googled. Um, yes, yeah. no, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, no, he does. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, I think, I think you were right in terms of, um, sort of allowing us to forget, because I think that was the purpose of a lot of these TV shows and, and, uh, you know, uh, conspicuously putting it into a, into a, small town in Indiana and yes. sort of challenging what we think life in these small towns is like 
And, you know, it reads as like not being all that different than being in Los Angeles or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And um, and I feel like Buttigieg has that kind of appeal. Yeah, he's a small town uh, mayor from, you know, South Bend. I mean, how more America, middle America can you get? Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, he's also like a gay yeah, man. Notre Dame, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a gay man that um, you know has a road is a road scholar, and it just you know he sort of challenges your notion uh, of what Middle America is like the same way uh, Pete Wyatt is that his name Pete Wyatt uh, the, uh, Ben, ben Wyatt. Wyatt same way Ben yep. Wyatt does yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's just that kind of sort of NBC appeal going mm-hmm. you know that he's got uh, that that's how I feel about him. Mm-hmm. No. No, I think you're absolutely right. He does appeal. And I think what is interesting also to me, and I do want to write about it, is that technically what's interesting to me about Pete Buttigieg is that he is so popular precisely because he's so he's white and gay. He seems perfect. Technically, though, he's not white. That's Oh, because he's from uh, his Malta? Pa- his father is from Malta, and Malta is very interesting it claims whiteness in certain ways, but it's actually sort of Mediterranean Arabish. <laughs> if you would actually explore its history, it's not a particularly white history. And Pete Buttigieg so refer just to happened- them as spicy whites. Yeah, I guess right, exactly. <laughs> kind of, sort of white, but not quite. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, w- were his ancestors colonizers or something? Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about his own ancestors, but it. it and I, the, the country has an interesting, weird little history of its own. But what I think is interesting is that, yeah, you know, because of his, um, because he's scored high in the gene pool, as it were, he comes off as incredibly white, blue-eyed, you know, son of middle America. Um, and I bring up the question of race because Buttigieg's career has actually, uh, in many ways, there's a sort of penumbra of race behind him that he has consist that he has been trying to outrun and which i think will that's a terribly mixed metaphor but you know what i mean but i think will catch up with him at some point and by that i'm referring to two uh, two things one is the really weird scandal and i say weird because it's so complicated the issue around uh his firing of south bend's first and so far only African-American police chief in a case that is way too complicated to go into here, but it has to do with recordings, it has to do with white officers using racial epithets, it has to do with all sorts of complications, but basically firing the city's first and only so far African-American police chief. And the second thing is his project that he called when he entered office, he called it A Thousand Houses in a Thousand Days or something like that, which essentially meant that to resolve the matter of urban blight, and we all know what urban blight is code for, right? To resolve the matter of urban blight in South Bend, which is a, which is a post-industrial city. It's a city that was once home to the Studebaker factory and has since uh, been in decline for a, quite a while. To solve the issue of urban blight, the, uh, which resulted in a lot of empty house lots and empty houses in the city, he raised a thousand raised as an R-A-Z-E-D, demolished a thousand homes in a thousand days, almost all of which, of course, belonged to or were owned by, you guessed right, African-Americans. And more recently, there was a shooting, again, by by a white policeman of an unarmed black man. And uh, there was a confrontation 
which came at the wrong time, obviously, for Buttigieg during the presidential campaign trail, etc. So that's going to come back and bite him in the ass, which is why I bring up the issue of race, because I think what's interesting to me is that in all of this, Buttigieg holds firmly to his racial identity as a white man, you know, even in the ways in which he talks about politics, right, as we white people have a duty to, etc., etc. But he's technically kind of sort of not white and i always wonder what would happen if we complicated that idea of race in his case um, and it all of that com- connects to what you said about middle america and is representing middle america and middle america in the american consciousness is resolutely represented and also self-represents itself as white but the truth of the matter and i say this as someone who spent her formative years, over a dozen of them, really, in West Lafayette, Indiana, in a town a lot like South Bend, I can tell you that, in fact, the population of people that you don't see are all Latino, are African-American. You know, it may still be technically a majority white, quote-unquote, culture, but the racial composition is drastically different from what America imagines Middle America to be. And I think what Buttigieg does, right, is he allows us to forget the war, and we can talk about that in a second, but he also allows us to erase the racial history and the reality of the middle, of Middle America. You know, the reality in the Midwest, for instance, is there are massive numbers of immigrants, many Latinos, who are actually undocumented, often traveling from town to town, but also often setting up, you know, they actually, entire towns in the Midwest are nearing majority Latino populations. That's a reality that none of us, that no one wants to acknowledge. So I think what Buttigieg allows, uh, excuse me while I get this cat off, sorry. Um, what Buttigieg, <laughs> <laughs> he was biting. So this cat, I'm cat sitting, hates Apple products. And he always bites through, yeah, he has bitten through so many expensive Apple cords. It's unbelievable. So, oh, yeah. Conspiracy theory. Yes. Conspiracy theory. Apple products put catnip in there so they will chew it. So mm-hmm. you have to pay another hundred dollars yes. for, so for a new adapter. I mean, he resolutely sits, sits down and bites through all of them. Anyway, so uh, he's also a black cat, speaking of race. <laughs> so, I think he has a colorist problem with, with Mac. Um, but so I think Buttigieg allows us to forget racial realities and he allows us, you know, through his. He portrays Afghanistan as some sort of idyllic backdrop for his big coming out story, which is crazy because Afghanistan is actually a country decimated by the United States. Well, he found himself there, you know, just like he took a gap year. <laughs> yeah, he took, he took seven months off his mayoral uh, tenure. Who does that? <laughs> you just got elected mayor and you're now going to take seven months off and just palm the city off onto your deputy mayor? Um, and that's what he did. He literally did that. He decided he needed to have, I think it was frankly just to build his resume. He realized he was going, he knew he was going to run for president soonish. And he realized that he needed to have combat experience or, you know, army experience. And Buttigieg makes me think that he has spent his, I, I sort of see him as a seven year old holding an attache <laughs> and typing up his resume oh, yeah. on his yeah. father's typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'd read a typewriter yes. cuz you know, he's because he's uh, he respects the past yes, he, and heritage he's a true, of he's people. He's a true hipster millennial. Yes, exactly. He has a typewriter. Yeah. 
Yasmin, from your article, um, my favorite line of yours was when he jokes about having met his husband off an app, but then he reassures everyone that it's not that app. It was rather Hinge. And then you wrote, Buttigieg's joke was a way of reassuring his audiences, straight and gay, that he isn't one of those <laughs> glorial-seeking and <laughs> sucking hypersexual gay men looking for sex. <laughs> I just found that, uh, yeah, I just found that really funny. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting how he desexualizes himself, you know, as a gay man, um, and that again is also about Middle America, which is interesting, isn't it? In 2019, you have a gay candidate so strenuously needing to establish himself as someone who doesn't suck dick. It's, I mean, it's kind of like how Obama sort of backed mm-hmm. off being the black candidate, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I I feel like uh, maybe the Democratic Party still in, I mean the, the magic of Obama they're still not giving up on that sort of identity bingo that you can play um, where I think Obama truly was one of a kind. I mean I it's it was really hard. I got to admit it was really hard not to identify with the guy uh, in, oh, in some deep way. I cried when he was elected. I yeah. cried the night he was elected. Yeah, I mean, we all did, yeah. either literally yeah. or metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was yeah. moving. It was and I think moving. they're still trying to find that magic again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but now it's just a sort of, it's, it, it's sort of a cynical game of, of, of bingo now and see who can string together, um, you know, the most, you know, who's going to be able to talk in, inside baseball with the most amount of people in, you know, this incredibly diverse, but, um, you know, ideologically uh, barren party uh, and, you know, the constituents within it, who who's best able to go and speak in private and in, 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 in ways that they're coded as an insider to all these disparate groups. Um, and they're just looking for the person with the most cred, you know, identity cred on that basis. I do find it kind of uh, cynical, but yeah, that was magic to capture, I suppose. You're right about the Obama magic. And yeah, I think all three of us admitted, you know, how moving it was for us to have witnessed that, right, in our lifetimes. Um, and I, I, in many ways, I've, I don't know if I put it in the piece or not, but I do refer to Pete Buttigieg as the white Obama in that sense. You know, he, the ways in which he crystallized yeah. all, all those hopes of someone like him making it to this office, definitely. Um, you know, and... There, there's a lot of cynicism. I, I forget what the term was you just used, which was really marvelous. Oh, ideological barrenness, I think, is what you what you said, and that's I think that's a fantastic term, and it describes, uh, yeah, descri- And again, you know, <laughs> honestly, there are times when I think, well, you know, the Koch brothers are horrible, but they fucking believe in something. <laughs> You yeah, know, yeah. I mean, my yeah, my title, yeah. my piece on woke capitalism is ironically titled "Believe in Something," but you know, in a non-ironic way, I would also say, you know, as political candidates, it is important to believe in something, and at the same time, then then you have to interrogate people on what they believe in. Which, but the problem with people like Kamala Harris, right, who flip flops on everything, and Pete Buttigieg, who will tell you exactly what he thinks you might want to hear, uh, yeah ideological barrenness but when you contrast that really with some of the republican candidates they bloody well believe in what they believe in man i mean they don't let go of it right i mean you can't shame them out of their racism and that's a horrible fact but there's a part of you that i mean at least a part of me that says well you can't shame them out of their belief that 
is kind of sort of something. One of the problems with Obama is that once you've had the real thing, mm-hmm. all his all his like imitators. It's, it's like the Michael Jordan problem. Remember when the NBA was just uh, desperate for the next Jordan, but they could never, mm-hmm. uh, you know, find him because you know there can be another right. uh, can't be another Jordan uh, because you have like a Cory Booker who's trying to yeah, do the yeah. whole Obama no. uh, orator thing. It right. just doesn't work. It, or Kamala Harris uh, to a lesser extent. Or um, Pete Buttigieg or, you know, oh, yeah. fucking fucking Beto O'Rourke, just perhaps right. the most pathetic right. uh, imitators of them all. It's right. just like, you know, once you have the real thing, you can't you can't mm. have any, like, you got to do something else. And yeah. No, I was just going to say, but in terms of that particular mo- magical moment that we all spoke of, right, Obama can't be replicated. At the same time, I think we have, and I say this as someone who lives in Hyde Park, where he's now going to be, after having been the deporter in chief, he's going to be the gentrifier in chief. He has a very controversial, oh, no. yeah, he has a horribly controversial, uh, it's not even a library, it's the Obama Foundation, uh, which is cutting into precious, uh, you know, public parkland, basically. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's a horrendous project, which is giving rise to all kinds of horrific forms of gentrification in this very straight, in, in this very strange neighborhood and surrounding area. So, you know, um, Basically, the presidency is a, pl- a place where you learn how to make money after you stop becoming president. It's it's a political establishment where the media managers, like the execs at Disney and stuff, are aware of the political importance of whether Ariel the mermaid is going to be black. And they're now really hunkered down thinking about what the race of the prince is going to be and all this stuff. And, and they're aware of the the importance of race and gender and color in casting stories and i feel like in a way that's the same thing that is going on with elections now it's like kind of how is what's the next it's all entertainment yeah it's the same thinking i think that goes into backing candidates now um you know the, the the party's kind of thinking about how to cast the president um, in a way that is, is, you know, is going to be interesting enough to draw out voters and, you know, raise passions and stuff, but still win the majority. I think it's the same kind of thinking that goes into casting, um, the Little Mermaid and things like that and all the other various, you know, YA aimed movies. Mm-hmm. Which goes um, back to your yeah. point about, right, the, the debates as auditions, basically. Um, and the whole thing is entertainment. And again, yeah, I don't, I think the demo, again, yeah, it's less about whom can we elect to bring about change and it's more about the optics of everything. I, you know, I think, you know, all of us can agree that identity, as we've said before, identity matters, representation matters, historical reparations, all of that matters a great deal. But I think the obsession right now, and I think this has a lot to do with where we are vis-a-vis Trump. You, you know, you have self-proclaimed radicals like Linda Sassour, who's the Arab-American activist, uh, for instance, loudly and you know vehemently saying something like, anyone but Trump. And that is the sentiment across the sort of liberal, progressive, leftist swath, right? Which is anyone but Trump. And that is the most fucked up thing because what you're saying then yeah, it is yeah it's because what you're saying to the electorate and you know what they don't realize is people are going to say well there's no difference between anyone i mean so what difference is there between biden and trump if you're going to have two sexual harassers in chief right what difference is there and also just looking at their record and everything 
what different you know on busing on race on gender on you know economic inequality all of that there's no difference and the electorate is this much smarter electorate right which is not necessarily the electorate that's reading all the left magazines the smart electorate is going to say if you're not going to give me a candidate who's that different from trump why the fuck shouldn't i vote for trump anyway we're not providing an alternative and this is you know matilda bernstein sycamore uh one of our greatest gay writers has you know queer writer queer radical writers once said our dreams have become so small and that's exactly where we are our dreams have become incredibly tiny these days we don't have dreams we don't dream of alternatives of wild you know fantasies of disengagement from the status quo we just keep wondering how can we just tweak the status quo yeah i was just about to say like anybody about trump yeah i understand that sentiment but you don't play that card until like later you don't show that mm-hmm. right when like basically a negotiation is starting there's like a total loser move you just yeah but yeah uh we are uh you know approaching time so i think uh, this is a great discussion uh, i thought we'd maybe be able to get to your suey park article but that's also fascinating because it talks about kind of like corporate wokeness but in a more micro setting mm-hmm. in like social media but i think we'll have we'll should devote a whole other podcast to yes. that so uh, Yasmin and Tim, do, do you have any other uh, like last minute things you, you want to get out there before we wrap this episode up? Really enjoyed this pot, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I did too. No, I, I really second um, what Yasmin said about there about the, the, the smallness of dreams and sort of like how circumscribed the left uh, is in many ways, especially. I, I mean, it, 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 there, there's a taxonomy of the left that we should that that should probably be discussed in, in you know, so when we say left, we should. Be, be specific about what we talk about. I, don't, I, I wouldn't say that there is nothing promising on the left, but I think on the whole, when we look at the left side of politics, I gather and 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 what's what's electorally viable. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think that there is definitely, uh, you know, even something like say the Green New Deal, which I back. I, I actually really support that. But even that, the requirement of having to reach back into history and sort of repurpose, um, you know, repurpose something in our past. Uh, because we just don't have the imagination to create something new um, is an indication of that. So, yeah, very, very much second that idea. That's definitely true. Thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. The Green New Deal, right. Um, and, and you know, just to uh, work off that, yes, I think there's a lot of potential. For, there's a lot of reason for hope. But I also feel like even in the sort of moments that we should celebrate, like the election of Alexandria you know, AOC, um, and quite more than a few uh, Democratic Socialist candidates have won in Chicago, for instance, et cetera, et cetera. Even in that, though, it it feels to me like everyone is invested in still a, a politics of personality and a politics of friendship rather than a question of what are the systems we're going to build? And I think for us, the big questions we have to ask are, okay, so do we have a plan for immigration? Or are we just going to keep talking about don't, you know, like don't kill children is a pretty low bar. (laughs) Don't kill people when you detain them at the border is a bloody low bar, right? Do we have an agenda for immigration reform that goes beyond that? Can we say, you know, how do we think about immigration differently in the context of this country's rapacious history? We don't have that. You know, what about women's rights? Again, don't rape women is a pretty low bar. Don't don't <laughs> reach for their privates is a pretty fucking low bar, right? 
Can we have an agenda that says once and for all, we will never allow abortion to be made illegal? No, we don't have an agenda for that. We just have constant reaction, right? That's our politics right now is of reaction. Uh, and I think on so many other grounds, we fail to generate a, a brand new vision of, of where we would like things to be. So I totally agree with you, Tina, on that, uh, which is, yes, you know, terms like even just the terms we use and the agendas we come up with are recycled. I absolutely agree with you. And there's no sense of reaching for an absolutely gainable utopia. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I think we will have to wrap up now. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Yasmin. Uh, before you go, do you have any... Uh, I mean, we're going to put your like Twitter handle and website and all that in the show notes. So uh, for all you listeners, you want to check out more of our work, uh, we can go to that. But do you have anything else you want to say about things you're going to do, uh, things we should check out? Yes, um, I have a lot of long-form pieces, including Jesse Smollett, which I will explain why it's more relevant. I've got another long-form piece on the American supermarket, actually. Uh, the history, oh, fascinating. Yes, American supermarket and food. Uh, being, you know, since I'm living in a food desert right now, uh, it's it's been an interesting uh, existence. And I thought, oh, well, it's well, lots of long-form projects, but also short-term projects as well. Um, if people can support me by subscribing or donations, that would be great. But also, uh, you know, subscribe, support, plan A and support people. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, yes. support, guys, people out there, anyone listening, support anyone who supports writers by paying them. I cannot begin to tell you as a struggling writer how important it is to have people who understand that writing is labor. So please support Plan A, support their Patreon, support them supporting their writers, please. The, the the fate of the world depends on this trust me on this <laughs> oh you're Indeed. so kind you're so kind <laughs> okay uh uh so i think that'll do it for this uh yasmin as, as i said we loved having you on and i'm sure uh, you will we'll extend an invite to you again because we got so much more to talk about yes um so okay, uh so thank you for being on here and hope you have a good night thank you you too guys all right bye team <laughs>